In the Tough Questions seminar stream, what we've been doing is looking at some objections to the Christian faith, questions like, how could God allow suffering? What about atheism? Those kind of questions. But we've also been looking in this stream at some of the challenges that you and I face in terms of us following Jesus, some of the barriers, roadblocks we might come across. And this morning, we're going to explore one of those when we look at the whole subject of mental health. I'm really pleased that uh, I'm able to introduce our speaker uh, right now. Will van der Hart is based at Holy Trinity Brompton. It's a large multi-site church in central London, which is actually planting churches not only in London, but all over the UK. It's the home of the Alpha Course. And Will uh, has a ministry both at HTB, where he pastors the other pastors, but also serving us as a nation in terms of mind and soul. That's his ministry. I want you to know that when I knew we'd be doing a seminar on this subject, my number one person in Britain that I could invite to speak was Will. I'm absolutely delighted that he said yes. He's so well equipped to serve us this morning. He's going to speak for around 45 minutes. He'll take questions from the microphones, which are placed here and here. We'll finish about half past. You can carry on asking Will questions after half past. He'll be outside, very happy to chat. But for now, I want to encourage you, there will be a chance to receive prayer at the end of this seminar if you want to be prayed for over here to my left as well. But for now, maybe you join me in giving a huge New Day welcome to Will van der Hart. Let's welcome him. Welcome. Wow. Great. So good to be here with you. I've got my merch, and um, so I'm sweet with my New Day uh, water bottle. But people say to me, Will, are we having an epidemic of mental health problems suddenly in the country? And I want to reassure you that we, we are not having a mental health epidemic. Actually, the number of mental health conditions which we're seeing have remained relatively static. So when you divide mental health up, there are two sort of divisions. There's one we call serious and enduring. And serious and enduring mental health problems will remain pretty much the same, really pretty stable, and they remain the same as they have done before. So they're disorders uh, around schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and the like. The neurotic disorders have also remained relatively similar, but we are seeing a really big upturn in two groups of people, particularly older people, much older people, which might be to do with the fact that people are living generally for longer, but also specifically around younger people. And that's why I'm so excited and thankful to be here at New Day, to be able to speak a little bit uh, into your life and experience. And, you know, we could talk about some of the fine details of different mental health conditions today, but the trouble with that was that would, that would impact just a few people in the room for whom those conditions are specifically relevant. But I want to talk in a kind of a bigger scheme this morning to you guys, because I'm really conscious that you're also, you're leaving the house today. And I wonder whether you're a bit anxious about what you're going back to. You know, the thing about conferences like New Day is it's a, it's a, it's a kind of extension, isn't it? It's a big extension. But it's also a time of real retreat. And so I want to talk today about retreating in order to advance. Now, I love what I heard Joel saying. I feel so fired up about the Bible and about the ministry that God's called us to. And I know you will too. And I know God has got a specific mission for each of your lives moving forward. And you're going to go back into that mission. But I'm also really conscious that your generation are overextended in a way that my generation never were. When I grew up, we had a telephone in our house. It was on the front table. 
And it was super embarrassing when I was a teenager because you know, the phone would ring and you'd have to actually go into the hallway and then pick up the phone and then my mum would come and kind of stand in the doorway like, who's, who's on the phone? And if I was ever phoned up by a girl, my mum would sort of stand there and say, she'd answer the phone and they said, there's a girl on the phone. And then I'd have to sort of do the walk of shame to pick up the receiver and then I'd have to sort of invite her to leave the room. You guys are plugged in in a different way. And when we look at the impact of uh, mental health conditions amongst younger people, we see that the one significant societal change has been the digital revolution. There's something about the transition between my phone that's plugged into the wall and your phone that's in your pocket is having an impact on the way we're doing life and the amount of stress that we're experiencing on the day to day. And that's made me think about whether or not we're so fired up for success we are exposing ourselves to new and significant risk, especially as far as mental emotional health is concerned. Now, don't misunderstand me. We are called to this great ministry, but are we fighting on multiple fronts? And do we know when we need to dial back for the sake of our own well-being? Now, I'm a bit of an armchair adventurer. You know, I love reading the stories of adventure that other people go on, normally from the comfort of my own sofa. And, and for a while, I got really into books and films around Everest. And um, one of the things that really struck me about Everest was not just that people were climbing it, but it was that people weren't climbing back down again. And I think um, I've got a little slide here to show you that 15% of the people who die on Everest die on the way up. But 56% of the people who die on the Everest die on the way down. Now, the mathematicians in the room are going, hold on a minute, that doesn't add up. What happens to the other people? So the other people, they died by turning back, or they died in avalanche in camp, or they died by illness in camp. But what struck me was no one ever says, I'm training to climb down Everest. You never meet anyone who says, I'm training to climb down Everest. You only meet people who say, I'm training to climb up Everest. You see, we're all about extension, we're all about success, about getting to the top, but we rarely ever prepare to come back down again. And when we think about stress in our lives, particularly Christians, we tend to think that we're only justified to feel bad or to struggle in our emotions if things are going really badly for us. So like you don't go to your new day kind of familial group or your community group or your youth group and turn up and say, Guys, I had a really fantastic week this week. You know, did really well at college. You know, I got a new job. And, um, you know, I got a great relationship. Things are going really well for me at church. And to be honest, I'm really overloaded and stressed right now. Now, we don't say that because it doesn't make sense. What we tend to say is, praise God, things are going really well. All of my dreams are being realized. But actually, success propagate stresses that lead us into a really vulnerable place. When you think about the Everest analogy, climbing up and actually winning the climb, getting to the top, that's less than half of the battle. Getting back down again safely, that marks out what real success looks like. And I think we so often overestimate what we can achieve in one year and massively underestimate what we can achieve in five years. That so often... In our world today, everything is so immediate that we lose sight of how to actually welcome into those unforced rhythms of grace that Jesus invites us to. And it may be that you're super fired up about going home, 
but there will be battles and challenges and victories which could overwhelm you. And I'd love to prepare you a little bit for that journey today. What I want to suggest to you is that success generates stressors that make us really vulnerable to failure. That actually success in itself causes us to stand in this precarious position of vulnerability. And that might be success in Christian ministry, it might be success in the secular world, it might be success in relationship or in community, but success itself is our blind spot. And in the church, success has always been our blind spot. It's really interesting that it's the opposed church. As Joel said, it's the church in battle. It's the church that's on the back foot. It's the church that's oppressed. That's often the growing church. That's the biblical church. That's the committed church. That's the church that's seen God move. Whereas the church that's reached success is often the church that goes to sleep. And sometimes in our own lives, as far as our emotional and mental health is concerned, when things are going really, really well, because they're going really well, we fail to acknowledge that actually we are standing, if you like, on a precarious high place and we're at significant risk. Now, you're thinking, well, well, surely success, you know, joy, victory, those are all the signs that God is with me. And that's true. It's not just that Christians, we're not called to extend ourselves, to press in for mission, to press in for ministry, to press in for growth. It's just that following every extension, there's a call to retreat. And I wonder whether sometimes we've exchanged intimacy with God for success for God. That actually God's called us to intimacy with Him, and out of that intimacy, success will flow. But when we exchange intimacy for success, we often lose ourselves, we lose a sense of God's presence, and that's often the place where we begin to suffer and struggle with emotional health issues. If you don't believe me yet, have a look at Gideon. We mentioned him a little earlier. Gideon defeated the Midianites. 300 of Gideon's men fought hundreds of thousands of Midianites. And yet, having achieved the greatest pinnacle of success, just when you think, wow, could things get any better for Gideon, he slips into idolatry. And he takes the golden rings uh, out of the uh, soldiers that he's beaten, and he turns them into a cloak, and he sets them, set them up for worship. They become a kind of idol. And, and this is his downfall. It says... There in the text in Judges 8.27, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Having achieved incredible success, Gideon falls straight away into idolatry, and the end of his story is a sad one. Take Saul. His success was beating the Amalekites, and he was again in an army against all odds, did incredible things, beat this other army, and then failed to follow the instructions of the prophet Samuel in the way in which they would deal uh, with the aftermath of the victory. And if you're going to slate someone in Scripture, I reckon that Saul gets the worst slating that you could ever receive. It says in 1 Samuel 15, 35, the Lord repented that he'd made Saul king over Israel. The Lord repented. God himself repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. He had incredible success, but then he fell immediately into disaster. And then David, 
who defeated the Ammonites, celebrated his victory by sleeping with one of the uh, soldiers' wives, and then having uh, slept with her, he orchestrated to murder that man in the battlefield. And in 2 Samuel 11:27, it says, the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, what I want to argue, what I want to suggest to you today by way of encouraging you to take care of your mental health, is that extension, extension, extension leads us to a place of stress which leaves us vulnerable, particularly to mixed anxiety depression, which is the largest diagnostic category in our society at the moment, 6.1%. For younger people today, this hunger for success, this desire to achieve, both in the great and wonderful things of the kingdom of God, but also in school and work and college and in society and image, are driving us up this mountain, but we've got no way back down again. Sometimes a breakfast, I want to be really honest with you, rather than just eating my cornflakes and reading my Bible, you know, I flick to, you know, Will uh, at Will Vanderhart on Instagram, and I kind of roll through my feed. Not my specific feed, because I know what's on there, but I, you know, I'm busy looking at what other people have been up to uh, over the course of the last 24 hours. And, and what that does in me, that drives insecurity in me and leaves me thinking, oh, I, you know, I, should, I should get on and actually make a difference. And some of that wanting to make a difference is so virtuous, and it's so after God's own heart, But actually what I've lost is I've lost intimacy with God. I've lost a place where my spirit can breathe because I'm so driven onto the next task. You know, in Scripture, there's no place which positively talks about drive. There's no positive reference to drive in Scripture at all. If you think that drive is godly, have a look again. Because God doesn't drive people. He only drives evil spirits. God doesn't drive you. God calls you. And God is calling you today into intimacy with him for the sake of your ministry and your mental and emotional health. And so often we say things like, oh, God's driving me on a new mission, but actually God's not driving us, we're driving ourselves. You know, if I'm going to give you great mental health advice, for the majority of you here today who are in the room and are able to make decisions for yourself, it's going to be this that you begin to take responsibility for your mental and emotional well-being. Because if you take that responsibility seriously, you will not just minister for one year or five years. You'll be able to minister for a lifetime. Now, what really troubles me in Christian leadership is how many of the people I've worked with and ministered with and some of the people I've, I've read their books and I've been touched by their preaching, and then I see them having achieved incredible things for the kingdom of God, they find themselves falling into breakdown. And that breakdown might be mental, emotional, it might be moral, or it might be spiritual. But they've climbed a great mountain. They've achieved incredible success. And yet their success is undone by their failure to retreat into the presence of God. And if you're thinking, oh, well, it's okay. I've just had a week of retreat here at New Day. And my spiritual batteries uh, and my emotional batteries are supercharged up. I can wait now until next year. I want to ask you to think again. Because actually, a one-off hit A one-off retreat once a year isn't enough to help you stay well and stay connected. You know, when we think about uh, negative impacts, we think, you know, well, you know, if if I've had a difficult time at home with my family, if my parents have broken up, if if I've lost a friend uh, to some incident or accident, they're all reasons to feel stressed and anxious. But did you know that some of the really great things in your life, they cost you a lot emotionally too. 
1967, a couple of psychologists called Holmes and Ray developed a questionnaire called the Social Readjustment Rating Scale. And what this helped people to do was to understand why they were struggling with their emotional health. When you went to the doctor, the doctor would sometimes give you the Social Readjustment Rating Scale to work out what you've been through in order to understand why you're now demonstrating some physiological symptoms. And those physiological symptoms might be low appetite, they might be poor sleep, they might be adrenaline in your system that causes you to shake, or they might be panic attacks, or they might be overwhelming feelings of sadness. But that scale helped people to understand maybe why you've moved into a season of anxiety and depression. But what was really interesting about the 43 things that Holmes and Ray identified as stressors was that some of the most exciting and wonderful things that could happen in your life are also so stressful. Getting married costs you 50 life change points. Can you imagine coming up the altar and saying, darling, I hope this is worth it because this has cost me a lot of emotional energy. Can you imagine a reconciliation with someone you've been out of relationship with? A wonderful thing. The gospel is all about reconciliation. If you led someone to Jesus this week, that cost you 45 life change points. That's a wonderful thing, but there's a cost involved in reconciliation. If you've got a promotion at work, like, you know, you suddenly got a great promotion, that's cost you 35, these stress points. They're building up in your tank. A high achievement. You won the football tournament here this week. That just cost you 28 life change points. Do you want to take your trophy back? What I'm trying to help you see is that life can be super stressful even when it's going really well. And one of the things about the Holmes and Ray scale is that you, know, you, you can predict the propensity to which people will struggle emotionally and mentally. So if you score under 150 points in the context of two years, you're going to have a low risk. But if you score between 150 and 300 life points, you've got a medium risk, a 50% risk of emotional health challenges. If you score more than 80 life change, uh, more than 300 life change points, you have an 80% risk of developing a mental emotional health issue or coming to breakdown. And there were some issues which are really big ticket numbers. So if something really difficult happened in your family and you also achieve those cumulate, say actually these have an impact. Now of course, God is above it all. But God's given us bodies and minds to tend and care for. He's not called us to brutalize ourselves. He wants us to be an army that can keep on marching. And the thing about an army is that you cannot win the war with one battalion. You have to keep on rotating your frontline soldiers forward and then backward and replace them in order that they might be advancement and retreat. Because those two things together enable the, the army to keep on marching. And for each of you, I want to absolutely affirm your call to mission and your passion for Jesus, but I don't want you to exchange your passion for Jesus and your desire for success for the kingdom of God for intimacy with Jesus, for that place of closeness, that place, place of proximity. We call this, um, this particular stress that so many young people are struggling with, success, because it literally is that. It's the stress that's propagated through being successful. Now, some of you here are thinking, well, I'm, I'm just not successful yet. But the fact is that your estimation of what success looks like is part of the problem for your drive towards success. Now, I work with business leaders in the city, and they are at the pinnacle of their career, and yet they still think that there's someone there 
who's doing better than they are, someone who's more successful than they are, something that, somewhere they should chase onto. We're so busy racing on and looking up, we fail to look around. We fail to look inside. And some of the young people I work with and my organization, Minus Soul Foundation, work with are often surprised young people who say, well, I've only just started and yet I feel anxious a lot of the time. And we say, well, have you been pressing into success? And they're like, look, I'm a total failure. But actually, when you dig down, you realize how hard they're driving in order to achieve. So hard that they've sacrificed their emotional and mental health for the sake of getting up that mountain. Now, what we want to do is distinguish between the burdens that you're supposed to carry and the burdens that you're not. Um, there's a measurement which, if you're doing physics at uh, school or university, you'll know, you'll know it's called Hooke's Law, and it determines how much load you can put on a spring for it to recover and how much load you put on a string for it to break. And Hooke's Law determines that, actually, productive stress extends the, str the spring to a point at which it can then return. But destructive strain overloads the spring to the point at which it will not return. A spring that's underloaded is not a spring, it's just a coil of metal. And as Joel said earlier, inaction, underaction, living life as a passenger does not help your emotional mental health. It does not help your ministry in the kingdom of God. It doesn't help your mission and ministry. It's actually a frustrating place to be. A level of load is absolutely healthy and appropriate and it's good for you. Productive stress is carrying your own bags. It's saying, actually, this is what God's called me to, and this is what I can do. Some of us will need to work particularly on our resilience, and some of us might have to have quite small bags to carry, particularly if we have a disposition towards a mental emotional health problem. But actually, carrying bags is helpful to us. It exercises the muscle of our resilience. But for many of us in the room, we will be carrying destructive strain. And this is when you're carrying buses, not bags. This is when the load of responsibility that's on your shoulders is greater than you can carry for the long haul. And I, I really rage against the language of the kind of millennial snowflake generation. I hate that language with a passion. Because in my experience, your generations are overburdened, overchallenged, and under-resourced. And you're not sitting back saying, hey, I want everything done for me. You know, the critique of my generation to your generation is unfounded because we don't understand the impact of the digital revolution. In fact, we know that many of you are starting businesses in your bedroom as well as going to college and doing a part-time job. Many of you are producing music at nighttime because you want to get into the music market as well as working in McDonald's, as well as doing an MA in business studies. Now, many of you are extended on every front, and the commodities which you've learned to lose are the commodities that we need to do emotionally well. And they're sleep, good nutrition, and safe people to talk to. Now, so often, the things that we really need to live well, the things that God provides us with, are the things that we thought are expendable for the sake of the success that we're driving towards. So I just want to apologize for my generation's critique of your generation. I don't think it's fair and it's not well-founded. And if you begin to believe it for yourself, you'll also drive yourself harder because of our old tropes around success. What we want to say is actually you need to care for yourself as Jesus cares for you if you're going to have a real impact on the kingdom of God. 
If you think about the mountain as this performance chart, performance goes up the y-axis stress along the x-axis. Doing nothing is highly stressful. You see your performance is low, but your stress level kind of begins to rise. If you've ever worked with someone who's unemployed, you'll know that being unemployed is extremely stressful. It's not a good place to be. Inaction or underload is not a happy place. A happy place is what we call optimum stress. Now, if you notice this bell graph, at the top of the mountain, you're still optimum stress. Please don't go away from this seminar and say, Will van der Hart said, I should just take it easy. And like Jesus' ministry, I should like hear the call of God, but then dial it down a couple of bits for my own emotional health and well-being. That's not what I'm saying at all. You can climb Everest with optimum stress. The key thing is not that you don't go high, it's how long you stay high. You know, on Everest, there's this band of 8,000 meters. Above 8,000 meters is known as the death zone. And it's called the death zone because your body begins to eat itself above 8,000 meters. It's pretty miserable. And when you've been above 8,000 meters for a long period of time, more than 24 hours, inevitably you die. And so climbers who climb Everest, they have to climb all the way up, but they have to climb back down again relatively quickly. And that's why 56% of the people who die on Everest die on the way down, because they didn't get down quickly enough. In our lives, we go up and then we stay up. And we think, oh, I'm on a roll. Have you ever said that to yourself? I am on a roll. I'm going to carry on going up. And I'm going to go up and I'm going to go up and I'm going to go up and I'm never going to come down. I've heard Christian leaders on the stage say things like, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm going to burn out for the kingdom. I'm not going to fade away. Burning out for the kingdom is not God's plan for your life. God does not want you to burn out for the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus went to the cross so you didn't have to. He's won the victory. You know, he said, come to me, all of you heavy laden and burdened. I will give you rest. Now, he's the good shepherd who's calling us out. And he's saying, when you get to the top of the mountain, make sure you come back down again so you can climb again. Because if you stay there too long, you get overload. And through overload, you might think you're performing reasonably well, but then the anxiety comes in. And then the low mood comes in, and then the productivity begins to drop. And before you know it, you're into breakdown. And when you're in breakdown, your performance drops completely, and then recovery is difficult, and it's a long journey. You know, in 2005, I was a young vicar. I've been a vicar in London for 15 years. And uh, the, I'm an Anglican vicar, so you wear the dog collar. And that's a bit like a superhero kind of thing. You know, you can kind of put it on, and then suddenly you're wearing it. And on, on the 7th of July, 2005, I was walking my wife to the Paddington tube station. Um, and as I walked back, the London bombing went off at Edgeway Road. And I put on my dog collar in my little flat. And I came out like, you know, clergy Superman. And I went under the cordon. And I came face to face with people who had been in that train. Uh, and then I met the police. And we established, if you like, the triage center for the emergency services in a little hall that I had directly opposite uh, Edgware Road Station. And for 24 hours and then for the following five days, I was in there doing all sorts of stuff that I wasn't qualified to do. And I was having all sorts of intense experiences which I had no reference for. And then three months later, as is so often the case when we've overextended ourselves and not taken care of myself, I began to have terrible panic attacks. 
And I would wake up at night in a cold sweat and I would shake and I would shake and I would shake and my wife would hold on to my hand. And at that time, we had no reference point for mental and emotional health in the context of the church. One of my pastors, who was more senior than me, he thought I was just tired and the other one thought the devil had got into me. And that was, a pretty, that was more scary than what I was going through. And it was actually a, a, a local GP who said, you know what, your anxiety system, your limbic system is absolutely overloaded. You're experiencing a physiological and psychological response to stress. I was like, tell me language I don't understand. I needed to go on a, a journey which involved medication, which is wholly appropriate for Christians to take, if that's your GP's advice. And I needed to do some talking with a therapist to actually work out what was going on in my life. I needed all sorts of important things to help me out of breakdown. But you know, one of the most interesting things that happened to me was that it's easy for me to say, oh, I had PTSD because of the London bombings. Let's blame it on that. I could tell you I was overextended for years before the London bombings went off. I can blame that one experience, but actually the story of my breakdown is much, much older and one of my colleagues came to me when I was recovering, and I just used to walk a lot every day to try and you know, help myself process what had gone on. He said to me, well, I'm really glad you've had a breakdown. I was like, what? He said, yeah, I'm really so glad you've had a breakdown, because I thought there was something wrong with me. I was like, I was like what? what are you talking about? He said, yeah, I've been watching you and working alongside you for a few years, and I, I genuinely felt insecure about myself because I thought my capacity compared to yours is absolutely pathetic. He's like, I-, I thought I should be doing everything that you're doing. And actually, I've just realized that you're abnormal. You know, and he was absolutely right. It was really painful to hear from a Christian brother, but he was absolutely right. I was driving for success, but I was f- flooded with success. The results were negative. I was living in an abnormal way, and I'd sacrificed success for intimacy with Jesus. You know, my friend, he was plugged into spending time every day in the presence of the King. He spent time face down with the Lord. He spent time in the Scriptures. That was my wasted time because you could be doing more productive things right then. I was out there with Gideon and Saul and David fighting this battle and then losing the war. My friend was face down with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he's getting really strong and being really effective. I'm telling that story to encourage you to know that actually we are called to this unforced rhythm of grace, which is dependent on us pressing in with the King and then pressing on with the work. It's not all about pressing on with the work. And as Joel said earlier, this is God's church and He will do it. And at the end of the story, Christus Victor, Christ wins. The Lamb has already won. And this work is dependent on Him, not on us. He's called us to join him in this work, but he doesn't need us to join him in this work. He loves us and he wants us to join him in this work. Here are a few things that's helpful for you to know if you want to get free from success at this really important stage of your life. The first one is that opportunities rarely dry up. Now, when you're in this phase of life, it's easy to think that this will be the only opportunity you get. When a Christian leader you really respect comes over to you and says, Hi, I've really seen the anointing of God on you, and, and, and I'd love you to come and work with our six-year-olds at church. There are only 36 of them, and 35 of them are boys, and we would love you uh, to come and help us every Sunday in that ministry. 
don't immediately say, oh yeah, an opportunity. Someone's finally seen my gifting. Take the opportunity to ask three questions. The first one is a visional question. Do you think that aligns with the vision that God's got over your life? The second one is a capacity question. Have you got capacity to do that work? The third one is a relational question. Does it enable your relationships to do that work? And fourthly, there's a blink test. Does it feel like God might be calling you to that work? If those things are a yes, then say yes. But don't say yes if you think this is the first and last opportunity you're ever going to have. Be obedient to the Lord, but don't let the desire to take every opportunity rob you of the opportunity God wants you to have. The second thing you need to know is that you can never get enough affirmation. You know, some of us will be driven towards success because we just want people to say, oh, I really, I really love you. You're brilliant. You're amazing. You know, I think the reason I moved into anxiety and depression was because you know, I just really felt like I wanted to do a great job and I needed everyone to say, you're doing a great job. Now, if you have a vacuum of affirmation within your heart, no amount of success will plug the gap. You need Jesus Christ to put the plug back in your bathtub and he will fill you with grace and truth and compassion. But that's his work. It's not the work of success. And you know on social, like no amount of selfies, no amount of filters will enable your heart to be fully affirmed. So let go of the comparison culture and say, I am looking in the wrong place for affirmation. If I retreat into the presence of Jesus, I'll get the heart healing I need. You know, again, with some business leaders, they're still like 14-year-olds in their own mind. They still want everyone to say, you're amazing. You're doing a great job. They've never got settled in themselves to know actually they are enough because Jesus says they're enough. Some of us here will be ruled by lists, but I want to encourage you not to be ruled by lists. Rule your lists. Don't your, let your lists rule you. You know, some of us list every day and we become beholden to our lists. And if you go to sleep at night and there's still 27 things to do, on your to-do list, you're often sleeping badly and you're filled with anxiety. You want to sleep well, tear up your list at the end of every day and rewrite it in the morning. Start every day fresh. Don't be slave to the list because lists have a habit of getting longer. You know, I did a little emotional experiment a couple of years ago. I decided to give up lists. It was a really risky experiment. I did it for one month and I decided I would just trust my brain to remind me of the things that were important in my life. And I want to tell you, it worked brilliantly. My brain reminded me of everything that was important to me. The problem was that it didn't remind me of everything that was important to other people. And so it led to a few relational conflicts. So I realized I needed to re-enlist my list. But what I decided as well was I would put the things that weren't on my list as my number one list-like priorities. Write down on the number one top point on your list, spend time, face time with Jesus Christ today. Spend time in intimacy with God today. You know, spend time in the Word of God today. Make the most important things the most important things. Ask yourself, as far as your emotional and mental health concern is concerned, what is not written down on your list? Write down the things that keep you in a good space. Fourthly, there's always a crisis. And some of us will be built towards responding to crises. You know, and the Lord in some of us will have built a really compassionate heart. 
But sometimes, again, we can become addicted to the crisis. It can become our identity rather than our calling. There will always be a new crisis in your friendship group, in your family, and in your community. But not every crisis is for you. You When we struggle, particularly with depression and anxiety, we tend to have quite a big compassion component of our actual psychological nature. People who struggle in these areas are often very caring and empathetic. And that means that actually your greatest gift is also your greatest enemy. I'm just calling you not to lose compassion, but be discerning about how many crises you can consecutively engage in. Know when it's time to say, I don't think this is actually a space for me right now. I need to get into retreat and spend more time face down with Jesus. Fifthly, some people will never like you. There were always haters. It doesn't matter how well you do. It doesn't matter how much success you have. As Joel said, you could, be, you could put the best YouTube video up on YouTube. There will still be 14,000 comments saying that you smell. The reality is that some people will always hate you. We have a spiritual opponent. We also have a social opponent. And we have personal opponents. And when we can accept that, we can begin to sleep in peace because we know actually God is on our side. He is with us and no one has to like us. We don't need to be liked to know that we're loved. And finally, I want to encourage you to say that you can unlock your own disciplines. As I said at the start of this talk, the most empowering thing I can offer you today for the sake of your own emotional and mental health is to say you can unlock your own disciplines, but you need to know it's okay. You know, Jesus wasn't happy all the time. Jesus shed tears. Jesus grieved. Jesus was in emotional distress. Jesus was seriously angry. Emotions are safe because God created emotions. And actually, God's created emotions in you. And befriending them and acknowledging them and recognizing them and unlocking disciplines that help you to live well every day and support and encourage your emotional and mental health, they are all good spiritual exercises. I told you about my struggles back in 2005, and my wife, who's very straight-talking, she helped me away from wrapping myself up in cotton wool. And as I said, this talk isn't to say, guys, you need to kind of dial back the mission that God's got on your life, you know, insulate yourself against all of the, the difficult stuff in the world. This is actually saying, get out there and do the ministry of the kingdom, but do it effectively and well and for the long haul. Sometimes we need to be scared. My wife said, I wanted to go and just chill on the beach for a couple of months. My wife said to me, I think we need to go somewhere really scary so you can kind of like press in and realize that you're stronger than you think. So she booked us a two-week jungle trek in the forest of Borneo. We did a 14-hour taxi drive into the jungle and we had to do the rest by boat because it was so inaccessible. And I was kind of shaking like a leaf half of the time. And when that wasn't bad enough, she said, oh, by the way, I've booked for us to climb the largest mountain in Southeast Asia. Hold on to the ropes because there are no harnesses. And, um, you know, when I looked at that mountain, kind of extending out the rainforest, it was uh, 14,500 feet, 4,095 meters. This is me and my wife at the top of that mountain. She climbed that mountain and she dragged me up that mountain. But you know, that mountain is made up of 200 flights of stairs. They're not literal stairs, they're just kind of cut into the rock. 200 flights of stairs up and 200 flights of stairs down. And every time we climbed a staircase, she turned around and she said, look, you've just climbed that. 
And then we climbed another staircase and she said, look, you've just climbed that. And then we climbed another staircase and she just, she said, look, you just climbed that. Well done, you've just climbed that. And before I knew it, over two days, we had climbed 200 staircases and we got to the top of that mountain at the crack of dawn. You see, God is calling you to win small victories for the sake of the greater ministry of the kingdom of God. And if you keep seeing what God is doing in the immediate, if you keep celebrating your successes on every step of the journey, it will be good for you. It will be good for your emotional health. It will be good for your mind. It will be good for your soul. And you will celebrate because God has called you to celebrate what he is doing. We climbed up that mountain and we climbed back down again. And I want to encourage you today not to see this great pinnacle of you being an amazing music producer as the place you've got to be, or even this great pinnacle of you being this incredible preacher headlining on the main stage at New Day, or whatever your vision is. Just say, God, what are the victories you've laid before me today? I want to walk up this staircase, and when I get to the top, I'm going to give thanks, I'm going to get face down, and I'm going to make intimacy with Jesus my priority. Resilience training is about going up and coming back down again. You want to climb Everest, you don't turn up at base camp and walk to the top. You climb at base camp, then you go to camp one and back down again, camp two and back down again, camp three and back down again, camp four and back down again, and then you finally go up to the top and back down again. The key thing is you come back down again. In this generation, I'm not here to tell you to waste your time. I want to make your time more powerful, more useful, more effective for the kingdom of God. And time spent with Jesus is not wasted time. Every time you feel that you've extended yourself, I want you to reach. This is the acrostic. I want you to reflect the first thing, the R. Reflect. Reflect on what God is doing. Every time something significant happens in Scripture, God shows you the panorama. He shows you what is going on. There's a vision for what is happening. Reflect on what's going on in your world. Sometimes we're so locked in, we fail to see the risks that we're facing. Secondly, empathize. You know, our gospel is not one of brutalization. Jesus doesn't come here to brutalize us, beat us with a big stick and say, hey, get up, you lazy millennials. It's time you went and did something useful for the kingdom of God. Jesus empathizes with you. He stands with you. He loves you. He speaks his words of grace and truth over your life. Jesus is here to build your heart and your mind. He's not here in order that you might have a list of tasks that you have to achieve. He's prepared works in advance for you to do. You've just got to work out which. Which to do and which not to. Thirdly, acknowledge the pain. When you spend big money on new trainers... Some of us have the habit of scrunching up the receipt, chucking it in our pockets, and hoping we don't see that ever again. But the wise ones here will check out the receipt, work out how much they've spent, and realize how much more work they're going to have to do to replenish their bank accounts. Mentally, so many Christians particularly say, I don't need to worry about spending the capacity of my mind. God will refill the tank. And yet we do know that we need to refill our bodies with food and exercise and sleep and other good things. I think God's called us to collective responsibility about our minds. I don't want the UK to be the self-harm capital of Europe anymore. You know, I want young people to get free from the controlling power of eating disorders. I want you to get free from the, the power of anxiety and depression. I want you to live free because Jesus has called us to live free. He said it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So if it's for freedom, why are we struggling? 
Is it, because, is it because we are not taking care of ourselves in the way that God has commanded us to? And would we love our neighbor more than we love ourselves? For some of us, loving our neighbor today might be hitting them on the head with a sledgehammer because that's the way we love ourselves. God has called us to collective responsibility and to personal responsibility for the well-being of our mental health. So acknowledge the cost. Celebrate the victories. Celebrate what God is doing in your life. When we run a negative script, which is sometimes symptomatic of depression, when we run a, a negative script in, on top of that, that drags us into depression as well. So as much as depression can be a neurochemical imbalance, it can also be propagated by the way in which we perceive our world. If everything is perceived to be negative, if we never celebrate what God is doing, that has an actual impact on our neurochemistry and can actually impact our journey into anxiety and depression. Gratitude training is a psychological mechanism which has fantastic impacts on our well-being. Psychologists are using gratitude training in therapy and in school. And yet the gospel is filled with a spirit of gratitude. Give thanks to God in all circumstances. Give thanks at all times and in all places. Give thanks. The Bible is the remedy of our emotional and mental health in so many ways. It's good psychology. Are you celebrating today what God is doing? I want to encourage you. No, I want to challenge you to take the opportunity to give thanks to God, not just once a day, but many times of your day. And finally, honor. Honor what God is doing in your life. Honor the challenge. Honor servitude. Honor humility. Honor Jesus in the way that you're approaching success. Because sometimes when we make him the king and not us, we reorientate our energies. When it's not about me and my victory, but when it's about him and his victory, when I honor him as my priority, I am less compelled to make bad decisions for my own well-being. I wonder whether you need to swap yourself and God around today and say, Jesus, this is all for you and all for your glory. Are you calling me to rest? Are you calling me into retreat today? Because for you, I'll do anything. You know, this is an amazing story at the end of uh, Mark's, or the beginning of Mark's gospel. And it kind of sets the scene for the way in which Jesus' ministry is going to go. And it says here in Mark 1, 34 to 35, Jesus healed many who were ill with various diseases and drove out many demons. Early in the morning, whilst it was still dark, Jesus got up and slipped out to a solitary place to pray. Jesus retreated in order to advance. Now, if I'd been Jesus in that house, that's a frightening thought, I would have hung around to heal as many people as possible, and I would have listened out for all their stories to make sure they said, wow, that's amazing, I'm so better, thank you. Jesus healed many, but he didn't say he healed everyone. What we do know is that there were people the next day who still wanted to be with Jesus, but then it says probably the most surprising thing you'll ever hear in Scripture. Jesus slipped out. Now, I don't think Jesus slips anywhere. Like Jesus had us of an entourage of people. Everyone like welcomed Jesus in and, you know, there were sort of trumpets and banners and palm branches and, you know, a huge amount of excitement. But here it says at the beginning of the gospel, Jesus slipped out. 
I reckon this is some of the best psychological teaching in Scripture. That Jesus left the place of his success for the sake of spending time with God the Father. Jesus slipped out and no one knew where he was going. Whilst it was still dark, early in the morning, he went away to a solitary place to pray. And you know, this is an amazing story where where the lost sheep of Israel, the disciples, go looking for the good shepherd. And they're like, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. He doesn't even respond. He's like, let's leave this place. He doesn't go back to their demands. He just crosses the lake and continues his ministry. You see, Jesus knew that the priority of his ministry was spending time in intimacy with the Father, not doing the work of success amongst the people. Everyone will have demands for your life. Everyone has expectations for your life, most of all you. You've got high vision, high expectation, high dream. But God this morning is saying to you, do not sacrifice the gift of your emotional and mental health for your own aspiration. I've come to care for you. I've come to equip you, and I've come to call you. And that's my work and not yours. And so I want to lay on you a light burden today. It's the burden of self-care. And really, it's the burden of obedience. It's saying, God, you know, I, I receive my mental and emotional health as a gift from you, and I want to nurture it as a gift from you. And I'm going to make a decision today not to brutalize that, for the sake of success, because Lord, I want to serve you for the long haul in my ministry. I want people to say, this person served faithfully for a lifetime. They didn't run fast and then burn out or blow up. So my encouragement to you is to take these unforced rhythms of grace every day to begin and to end with place face time with Jesus Christ. Know that he loves you, that he's for you, that he wants to nurture you, and he wants to lead you into a place of wellness and peace for his name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I would love to resource you all much more specifically around individual disorders and how to respond to them. And there's some time now for questions. So if you'd like to come up and just stand behind these microphones, then I would love to answer any specific question related to emotional mental health or anything I've said this morning. If you just think, I just want to get connected and I want to find out really detailed information, then you can just head to uh, mindandsoulfoundation.org or get us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Mind and Soul UK or at Will Vanderhart. So I just want to know that there's thousands of pieces of resource, films, videos, and articles there for you and your church leaders to use. Let's go with the first question. Hi. Hello. Um, how do you find a healthy, what do you think is a healthy balance between um, overly dwelling in thoughts and emotions, but then on the other end of the spectrum, bottling things up and not saying anything? Because I feel like there's two extremes and yeah, so, I mean, everyone's balanced between whether they spend time, too, too, do they spend too much time in their head or not enough? And I think there's a, a danger at both ends. So those of us who are naturally what more hard-driven tend to spend a lot of time just doing action and not really thinking about it. 
Those of us like me who are more neurotic, that's a kind of typology, tend to spend quite a lot of time in our heads. Everyone here will have what's called an inner narrative. So you'll constantly be thinking about stuff either particularly relevant or maybe less relevant to the circumstances that you're currently in. And I think sometimes the devil gets us to not do enough of an important thing, and sometimes he gets us to do too much of it. And there is definitely a healthy balance. If we spend too much time in our own heads, we can sometimes, particularly if we're naturally more depressive, we can find ourselves turning the script in a way which is what we call intro-punitive. That means it attacks ourselves. So we can actually begin attacking ourselves. And when we do that, our, 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 our reality gets distorted. If you only ever take your own advice, you'll ultimately end up taking bad advice. And so my encouragement is to acknowledge your own thoughts, to be in that space, but not always to believe that space, because it tends to be distorted by our own narrative. And that's why spending time and being accountable with others is really important. And if we're in that space, particularly around depression, we need to be able to talk to someone in confidence about what we call the scripts of their mind. And scripts are things that constantly get replayed. Sometimes they're things like, I'm really ugly, I'm really fat, I'm really useless, I'm never going to amount to anything. But scripts normally tell us an absolute, and they're very inflexible. And so sometimes we can end up with those scripts running around and around in our heads. They always feel new. And one way of combating them is by just writing them down and labeling them for what they actually are. There's definitely middle ground, but we need to be aware of the energy of both ends. Great, let's go to this microphone. Hello. Um, why doesn't Jesus just get rid of mental health? Why doesn't Jesus just get rid of mental health? It's a really great question. But Jesus hasn't just got rid of mental health in the way that Jesus hasn't also gone away from physical ill health. So many of us compartmentalize mental health as being almost a different category. But actually, so much mental health is actually physical health. It's actually neurochemistry. It's the way our brains work. And because of our sometimes slightly strange bias around mental health, we've disconnected it from physical health. Good physical health and good mental health are actually very much co-joined. And um, lots of mental ill health, particularly in the serious enduring side, are linked to really the, the actual physical mechanisms of our brain. So this is very much physiological. And so we live in this tension of the now and the not yet of kingdom of God. We know that Christus Victor, the lamb, wins, and yet we're still wrestling in tents while longing for a heavenly home. I know that in heaven there will be no mental health as much as in heaven there will be no physical health. And so I think what's really important is recognizing that we are wrestling Jesus does heal today, and Jesus is really good medicine for our mental health, but we still have to engage with the physical reality of our mental health, and in so doing, ultimately, we find a journey of healing as much as we do with many physical health conditions, but the ultimate good news is that in heaven, we won't be wrestling with mental health. Thank you so much. This side, yeah, great. You said that mental health, like in terms of anxiety and depression, is as a result of like success and how that stresses people out and affects them negatively, right? Not, ju- not just success, but that's, that's an aspect of it, okay. absolutely. So what I wanted to kind of present to everyone here and to you as well is that what if I argued that mental health is, while it also is a result of success and the stress that it brings, is a result of perspective on that success? Because I think how we see things... I think our perspective determines our reality. And I'm not talking about physically, I'm talking about how we respond to things, how we respond to people, events, everything. So what if I said to you that what you're saying is true, but while trying to be broad, 
I think mental health and the real advice for mental health is to try and change your perspective. And as a Christian, we can use God to help us do that. That's how we achieve true mental health, in my opinion. Thank so, you. Yeah, one of you are absolutely right. So in psychology, we talk about making appraisals. And appraisals are assessing and assuming that not every way in which we perceive our reality is true. So because we are the agents of our own mainframe, we believe that what we see and experience is true by the way we interpret that reality. And a lot of work in mental health is about helping people to make a new appraisal of their reality to actually question whether it is true or not. So for as many of us with anxiety and depression, we'll interpret our circumstance as a, a direct kind of reflection on our personhood. For example, our parents might have broken up and we say, well, that's my fault, I did something wrong. Or our community might be you know, in breakdown and we might say, well, that's probably because I'm part of this. So we tend to personalize it and we lay a frame over it which makes it very self-referencing. Now, when we spend time with intimacy with God, God recalibrates the way in which we perceive our reality to be true and not false. So on that level, you're absolutely right. Reviewing or re-perceiving in a new way transforms the way in which we experience life and that's why gratitude is such an important mechanism for recovery because we begin to give thanks for things and see them in a different way. At the same time, there's undoubtedly neurochemical aspects to our de depression anxiety, some physiological causes and not everything is about how we see it. The inverse of what you said is if you choose happy, you won't be depressed and we know that equally isn't true because of the causes of depression are more complex than just perception. But perception is a really important part of the story. Absolutely, thank you so much. Let's go to this side. Sorry. Um, what would you say would be the best way to get motivated to read scripture? Because obviously, if you're saying to read scripture to get motivated, but first you need to find the motivation to read scripture. Well, I, I don't want you to be over-motivated. That's the key thing. What's the purpose of your motivation? You know, I think many of the young people in this generation are highly motivated. But, but the gospel is not all about to do. Jesus doesn't just say, come and do. Jesus says, come and be. So Jesus invites the disciples to do very little doing, if you look at it. He actually invites them to only into a few tasks, but he invites them more into presence. So, so much of Jesus' time is spent having meals, you know, spending time talking and, and, and relating. And I think Sometimes in the, in, the, in the Christian church, particularly in the more charismatic and evangelical Christian church, we've exchanged being human beings for human doings. But actually there's a super balance here between spending time in the presence of Jesus and being motivated for the ministries of Jesus. And I would say our motivation should come out of presence, not out of drive. So when you're spending time in the scriptures, I, I, I'd love to just to hear the gentle voice of Jesus who invites your, his presence into your life rather than necessarily being motivated to action. That's not to say that for some of us, motivation won't be super important. And if you're struggling with depression and anxiety, motivation can be hard to find. But again, I think we cannot recover by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and sort of getting on with it and grinning and bearing it. We know those things don't actually work in terms of recovery. Intimacy, relationship, presence, they all form a core part of recovery. So I'd say read Scripture for the words of Jesus, you know, in terms of what is Jesus saying to you, and is he speaking that negative, condemnatory drive over your life, or is he saying, actually, I love you, I want to be with you, I want to fill you with my Holy Spirit, I want you to love my word and serve my church. They're quite a different kind of mentality. So I hope that's helpful. Go for presence, and then you'll find your motivation. Let's go to this side. 
Hi, I know there are a lot of people like me who have anxiety and who also pick up on other people's feelings and over-empathize. And I was wondering if there's any advice you could give people like me who feel yeah. other people's feelings just as much as their own. So good. So um, after, the Snowden in, uh, after the Snowden event, the uh, US government developed something in the Carnegie Mellon University uh, in the US called the Guilt and Shame Proneness Scale. And what they wanted to do was find um, more psychopathic types who were high-functioning, like Sherlock Holmes. And they would go and work for like, um, agencies like MI5 and then give away state secrets. So they wanted to get rid of those people in their recruitment process. They were trying to find people who had what we call hard personality type, but didn't have any moral scruples. Now, what um, Taya A. Cohen did in this study was he was trying to find those people, but he actually found this other group of people, about 20 to 30% of society, who were called empaths. So empaths are people who are on your ministry team. They come and pray for you, but when they're praying for you, they start weeping and crying, but you're the person being prayed for, and you're going, why are you crying? And they're like, I feel your pain, because they feel deeply. And actually, many people who struggle, particularly with anxiety and depression, have that natural empathy. On one level, it's a real gift, but it's also a real burden. And I think the key thing about being an empathic person is using boundaries to help contain the you versus the, le the them. There's a really brilliant book by um, Henry Cloud uh, called Boundaries, and it really illustrates how we can kind of distinguish between ourselves and other people. There are three sorts of boundary states, which is helpful for you to know. There is codependent, which is the risk of the empath, where you blend with another person. There's independence, where you've got such hard boundaries, no one can get near you. That's also not a good place to be. The happy place is what we call interdependent. That's when you know who you are, where you begin and where you end, but also you can interact with other people and you still remain distinctively you, but emotionally and relationally connected. So I recommend boundaries to you. Again, there's loads of stuff on the Mind and Self Foundation website that can help you around being empathetic. But it's a gift, so don't lose the gift of empathy for the challenge of managing your empathy really well. I understand, Adrian, that we are now we're, uh, we're out of time. Yeah, Will, thank you so much. In case you didn't catch it, Will's ministry, Mind and Soul, if you want to make a note of that, he is willing to stick around and answer some more questions. So if you've not yet had your question asked, Will is going to stick around in just a moment. He's going to wander off in that direction out into the sunshine where we're pointing now. And so you can come and meet him, chat to him, and so on. It might be, though, that you quite like someone to pray with you. One of the reasons we put on this seminar is to create an opportunity for you to receive prayer. Maybe you'd like somebody to stand with you. Will talked about a safe person to talk to. Maybe you'd like a safe person. Maybe you'd like someone to affirm you and encourage you you'd like someone to pray with, there'll be some ministry team over here to my left where I'm pointing now. So those two things will be happening now. Would you join me in thanking Will for serving us so well? Will, thank you so much. You've been tremendous. Thank you so much for serving us at New Day. God bless you. I just wonder, just, just, just before we leave the tent, it would be just good to pray all together for just one moment, if you just stay uh, just as you are, just for a second. Jesus, we just want to just affirm again that you are, you are Lord of Lords, and your Lord over our lives, your Lord over our minds, Father, and over our emotions. And as we, as we leave this place today, we pray we'd go with your peace uh, that passes all understanding. And we want to stand with and pray for anyone in this tent right now who is struggling with their mental emotional health problem. We want to pray that they know that they're loved and not judged. 
And we ask you, Lord, that you would heal your church, that we would be effective in the mission that you've called us to. And we want to pray for your blessing as we seek to serve you and serve one another. And we pray that kindness and compassion and love would flow between us in this difficult area. And so we pray for breakthrough in Jesus' name. And we pray for your joy, Lord, as we leave this place. We pray we would retreat in order to advance the kingdom of God. And we pray for those moments of deep and powerful intimacy with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks so much, everyone. There's a few books out there as well if you want to grab one for a read. And it's been a real privilege to be here at New Day. Thanks so much.